Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they took from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today's guest is Kim Harris, the general counsel of NBC Universal and an executive vice president of Comcast. I got to know her when she was deputy White House counsel for President Obama. Prior to that, she worked in the criminal division at the U.S. Department of Justice and before that at the highly regarded law firm Davis Polk. We recorded this episode on Friday, November 6th, which was after the election, but before President-elect Biden had been declared the winner. We were remote, given the circumstances. Kim Harris, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. Happy to be here. Um, I'm so pleased to have you as my guest today. Um, We're going to get into uh, how I know you and where we worked together. But um, for our guests, would you mind just kind of starting at the beginning? Where did you grow up and what was family life like? Well, I was born in Canada, uh, and then we moved to the suburbs of New York City when I was five years old, and I've lived here ever since. In fact, I still live in the same town that I grew up in. I'm the youngest daughter of three um, to actually an interracial couple. My dad is Trinidadian. He's black, and my mom is white. We used to like to joke that my Mother never saw the sun before she met my father, and my father never saw the snow. He immigrated to Canada in the late 50s to go to university there, and they met at university. And I always have been impressed at how brave they must have been to get married in 1963. We used to joke with them that their wedding photo sort of looked like Doris Day meets the Four Tops. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't know any of that about your background. So when uh, did the family move? Yeah, What year did, did you move to um, uh, New York or outside of New York? And what was the reason for the move? So we moved in 1975 to New York. And it was really because my father got a new job. He had worked for a um, consumer magazine in Canada and was offered a job working for Consumers Union, the publisher of Consumer Reports magazine. So it was a great opportunity and he decided to take it. And so the whole family moved from Canada to New York and we've been here ever since. What were dinner conversations like? Did did they include politics and did they include observations about America and how it's different uh, from Canada and from Trinidad. You know, what's funny is I actually don't remember that. Um, What I do remember is sort of a singular focus on education. My parents always emphasized to us how important it was that we did well in school. They very much viewed education as the path to opportunity for us. And they wanted us to do well in school and to go to college and to go to graduate school. And that was what we really focused on a lot, how things were going at school, how were our grades, what were we doing, what were we doing outside of the classroom. That's what I remember a lot of what we talked about every day. Well, that comes through in in your resume because you went to Harvard for undergrad, then you went to Yale Law. Um, You clerked for U.S. District Court Judge Charles Haidt. Do I have that uh, pronunciation right? Haidt. Charles Haidt. Okay. Thank you. In the Southern District of New York. And then uh, to Davis Polk uh, for about 10 years for your uh, successful legal career. You eventually became a litigation partner. After that, so after about 10 years at the law firm, you uh, went to work at the U.S. Department of Justice. How did that transition happen? Well, um, you know, I'd always wanted to do public service at some point in my career. The traditional path for 
people in my situation had been to go to a big firm in New York and then go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and become a prosecutor for a few years and then go back to a firm. And I never did that largely because I had three kids while I was an associate at Davis Polk, and it just never seemed the right time to leave the firm to go be a prosecutor. So when President Obama was elected, I, like many other people, was incredibly inspired by that. And I just decided that finally it was time for me to do my public service. And I wanted to join the Obama administration as a lawyer in some capacity. And I got sort of lucky because at the time I was trying a case and I was co-counsel with Covington and Burling, which was the firm where Eric Holder, who had been nominated to be attorney general, came from. And one of his partners, I mentioned to him that I would really love to go work in the Obama administration. And he recommended me to Eric and to Eric's partner, Lanny Brewer, who ultimately was nominated to be the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. And one day I got a call from Lanny who called and said, you know, we've never met and you don't know me, but somebody recommended you to me and that you might be interested in working for me at the Justice Department. So I jumped on the opportunity. I went down to D.C. to meet Lanny and happily he offered me the job a couple of weeks later. Um, and it was the best decision I ever made. I mean, I, I left a pretty stable job as a partner at a big New York law firm, took probably a 3,000% pay cut, but uh, went to work in the Justice Department and never looked back. Incredible. So you were in the criminal division. For our listeners, what does the criminal division do and what was your role there? So the criminal division is essentially like the, the headquarters of criminal enforcement and policy for the Department of Justice. There, there are obviously 93 U.S. attorneys offices throughout the country. They also have criminal enforcement authority and they pursue cases in their jurisdictions. But the um, criminal division of Maine Justice is sort of the center of criminal justice policy. They There are certain functions that are reserved solely for the criminal division on behalf of all of the U.S. attorneys offices like you know, approving wiretaps. Um, and they also set criminal justice policy for all of the U.S. attorney's offices and for criminal enforcement throughout the, the Justice Department, except for some specialized criminal enforcement that occurs in other divisions of the Justice Department. My job was as a senior counsel to the assistant attorney general. So I was basically there to help Lanny run the just the criminal division um, from what we called the front office, sort of the, the, the he was essentially the executive of the criminal division. And our job was to assist him in making sure that both the strategic and enforcement priorities of the criminal division were executed. So a, a lot of what I did was serve as in some ways a liaison between the prosecutors and the front office of the criminal division. I did not prosecute cases. That wasn't my job. But I would often work with the prosecutors, for example, if they thought that we needed changes to a criminal statute because they wanted to make enforcement easier or to fix a problem in a criminal statute, one of my jobs would be to work with the prosecutors on figuring out what kind of changes we need to be made and then to go up to the Hill with the Ledge Affairs Office for the Justice Department to try to get some of those changes made or to try to get more funding for particular aspects of uh, criminal justice enforcement. I also sat on various task forces for the criminal division to help sort of serve as a liaison with other executive branch offices. But it was essentially that kind of job to sort of manage criminal enforcement policy. And again, as I said, Lanny's strategic objectives as the assistant attorney general. 
You know, that that's an aspect of policymaking that gets that is very underreported and underappreciated, even here in Washington. I mean, people look to the Hill and think that's where policy is made. And and obviously that is the hub of policymaking. But so much of the policy ideation and the iteration of policy ideas between the Hill and, and federal agencies um, is really deep, uh, right? Because all the expertise or much of the expertise is sitting in the agencies. Very much so. So we would spend a fair amount of time with the um, relevant committees in Congress because they would look to us for expertise on criminal justice related statutes. Um, and my job, as I said, was essentially to make sure that I was getting the expertise from the people who were on the ground to actually prosecuting the cases and translating that for Congress about what we really needed to make ourselves as effective and efficient as we possibly could be. So in 2010, you moved from DOJ into the White House Counsel's Office, where you were the Principal Deputy Counsel and Deputy Assistant to President Obama. You and I met because your portfolio included congressional investigations and executive privilege issues. I was a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs, and Republicans had just taken uh, control of the House of Representatives, so there were a lot of investigations. Um how do you describe the White House Counsel's Office to folks uh, who may not understand where it sits within the various components of the White House, its role, and then specifically your role within Counsel's Office? So the White House Counsel's Office is essentially like the in-house counsel for the White House. So we provided legal advice to the president, to the senior staff of the White House, um, to make sure that everybody understood what our obligations were um, and what our responsibilities were as essentially the, the head of the executive branch. And one of the things we also did was coordinate among all of the lawyers throughout the executive branch. So we used to have a regular meeting with the general counsels of all of the executive branch agencies to make sure everybody was on the same page about not only priorities of the administration, but what we saw as key legal issues that were present, whether it was in policy issues that we were discussing or just generally in the management of the executive branch. Um, and the White House Counsel's Office, again, just provides that core legal advice for the White House and the senior staff. The office itself has a bunch of different functions. So there's a group of lawyers in the White House Counsel's Office that, that work on all vetting. So they vet um, presidential appointees, but they also primarily vet judges, um, U.S. marshals, um, and U.S. attorneys. Um, there's a there's a group in the White House Counsel's Office that actually works with the National Security Council and provides legal advice on national security-related issues. There was the group of folks that worked with me that focused on litigation and investigations on behalf of the White House. And then, of course, there was the core work on policy matters, working with a domestic policy council and just with senior your staff overall and making sure that we understood what the legal implications were of some of the policy initiatives of the White House. Um, and in terms of my job, as you said, my, my, my core function, part of it was to just manage the legal function of the White House um, on behalf of the White House counsel. I worked for two White House counsels. I worked for Bob Bauer, who was the first White House counsel when I arrived, and then Kathy Rumler, who took over for Bob when he left the White House. Um, and uh, one of my day jobs was to manage litigation and investigations facing the White House, um, which, as you noted, was quite busy after 2010 when the House um, went under Republican control. 
Yeah. There were a number of investigations during the Obama administration, and the ones that I recall off the top of my head were Fast and Furious, Solyndra, IRS targeting, Benghazi. Ultimately, they didn't amount to very much. A lot of newsmaking, a lot of sound and fury, but nothing of substance. What advice, being a veteran of such investigations, what advice would you give to incoming White House counsels um, in managing both what is, you know, at times very valid congressional oversight, um, you, you know, uh, right to to have information, have access to it and hold hearings and investigate, while at the same time protecting the executive office of the president and the presidency itself? You know, I, I think the answer is actually embedded in your question. And I'm so proud that you asked it that way, because it means all of the training we did when we were in the White House <laughs> together actually sunk in. Um, I retained something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, we, we started with a, a, a really fundamental belief that Congress did have legitimate oversight responsibilities and that it was part of our job was to make sure we could facilitate legitimate oversight responsibilities um, while at the same time protecting the prerogative of the executive branch. And it was all about balancing. Every single time we got a letter, an investigation kicked off, it was all about finding that right balance, making sure that we could provide information to Congress that we thought they legitimately needed in their oversight capacity, but always making sure that we were protecting the prerogatives of the executive branch. And by the way, that function is something that up until recently was pretty bipartisan in the sense of each president handled it very much the same way. We would look to precedents from the Bush administration, precedents from the Clinton administration to see how we were going to handle some of these issues in terms of executive privilege and the scope of the executive branch prerogatives, because the, the focus was on preserving the prerogatives of the office of the presidency. And so you often found that we were actually in the exact same place as where our Republican colleagues may have been, because everybody had a belief in protecting the presidency. And that really wasn't a Republican or a Democratic thing. And so, I, I mean, I've certainly watched Congress change over my time in Washington. How have you watched the White House Counsel's Office change? If it has. Well, it's interesting. It's always difficult to tell from outside exactly what's happening inside. Um, I guess what I'll say is in the Trump administration, I don't envy the lawyers um, because I think they must have a client who doesn't doesn't always take their advice. So um, I appreciate the challenges that they must be facing on a daily basis. Um, we we had the, the, the great privilege and honor of working for both a president and a staff that really believed in the office, believed in the integrity of the office, understood what its limitations were, listened to us when we trained people about the do's and the don'ts of being a White House staffer. Um, and I think that led to what you described, which was actually very few investigations, no scandals. And in the first term, when I was in the White House counsel's office, one subpoena in four years. So um, it's, just a, it's just a big difference now. Yeah. Well, and it, it does speak to the importance of norms and expectations, not just the law. Right. It's not just the law that prevents people from bad acting. It is wanting to act with integrity and never bring embarrassment to the boss. Right. Or to his or her administration. And if you don't have that, all sorts of behaviors uh, that are not good are going to be ushered in.
Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of the things that I think we've all realized is how much of the way that the various branches of government interact, the way that the executive branch behaves is based on little d democratic norms as opposed to actual regulatory or statutory standards. I, you may remember we trained everybody on a contact policy with respect to the Department of Justice. It was a standard memo that every administration, Republican or Democrat, drafted at the beginning of every administration to protect the Justice Department from even the appearance of political interference. We took it very seriously. We trained everybody on it to make sure that um, the Justice Department maintained its integrity throughout our administration. That is not something that is mandated by statute or by regulation. It is absolutely a norm that we followed and we're proud to follow because we thought at the end of the day, it made sure that people had faith in the decisions of the Justice Department. You know, the signal comes from the top, but there is also an obligation on every individual staff member, both to conduct themselves in a way that comports with that integrity, but also to ensure that their colleagues are doing the same. When I was in the White House, if I had done something wrong or embarrassing to the administration, President Obama was not the one who was going to buttonhole me. That would have been the chief of staff or more likely the head of legislative affairs, Phil Shaliro. But I would have been deathly afraid of anyone in the White House turning to me and saying, hey, you really screwed up there. Yes, absolutely. That was a part of our job in the White House was to go around and make sure everybody was behaving. And I, I used to... Uh, I used to cringe when I would walk into an office and somebody said, what did I do? <laughs> would be their first reaction. <laughs> but we tried to we tried to just counsel people. Um, but it worked. Again, it was it was easy to do in the administration be, that that you and I both worked in because I think people had uh, they they had the right goals in mind and they had the the right approach to the office and being a staffer in the White House. Yeah. So in 2012, you left the White House, you returned uh, to the law firm. Uh, but in 2013, you joined NBC Universal, where today you are the general counsel and also executive vice president of the Comcast Corporation. And in this role, you oversee, as I understand, international government and regulatory affairs for Comcast, supporting the company's business worldwide. Um, can you tell us kind of what your day to day actually looks like with you know all of that description? Sure. So um, on the NBC Universal side, my job is to be the general counsel, which is essentially to manage the legal function for all of NBC Universal and its business units. So it's everything from our film studio, Universal Pictures, to our networks, from the NBC network to um, our cable networks, including USA, Sci-Fi, Oxygen, E, MSNBC, CNBC. Uh, we also, of course, have theme parks. So we have Universal Orlando, Universal Studios Hollywood, and um, we even have some international um, theme parks. So it, the day-to-day -day can be whatever happens to be going on. There's a lot of businesses. There's a lot of stuff going on on a daily basis. It could be a sports issue one day, a film issue another day, something going on with the theme parks. But I have a great team of lawyers who help manage all of those legal issues that we face on a daily basis. And my job is both to make sure that we have a really high quality, well-functioning 
legal team. Um, and then I'm helping give advice to the senior executives on sort of the critical legal issues that we face on a regular basis. On the government affairs side, I coordinate government affairs for NBC Universal globally. So that's all of the NBC Universal issues, not only domestically, but internationally. And then my second job at Comcast is to manage international government affairs for Comcast, which was really a function that came to being after Comcast acquired Sky when we had not only NBC Universal operating globally, but also had Sky operating in Europe. Wow. So you, I mean, you've been uh, at the center of, of governance uh, in the White House as counsel, and now you are at the center of an incredibly large, diverse company, uh, as you mentioned, with global uh, legal, regulatory, and business issues. Is there anything from your your days at DOJ and the White House that you reflect upon and take into your current work? Um, I, I assume there are many attorneys who work in this space who were not staffers, right? Who had very successful legal careers, but just hadn't been staffers. So what from that experience of being a staffer do you think informs your work today? I actually think there are a bunch of things. One is um, the White House gave me great training in how to work in a very high profile environment where the decisions you're making on a regular basis are likely going to be on the front page of the paper the next day. You know, the, the White House is a very different place from NBC Universal, but everything we do at NBC Universal is by definition in the public eye because we're doing movies and television and news and sports. So um, learning how to operate in that kind of environment under those kind of pressures was very helpful when making the transition from government into the the private sector. I would say the other thing is that the executive branch is a really complex place. Um, it's not monolithic. There's lots of different agencies that have uh, their own objectives and priorities. And one of the things you learn when you're a staffer in the White House is that you really have to figure out how to coordinate that large group of disparate entities and make sure that everybody is sort of rowing in the same direction. And that was very helpful when I came to NBC Universal because it is a collection of um, a number of different businesses, as I mentioned. And so figuring out how you develop the relationships, figure out what people's objectives are, what they're focused on, and help make sure that that big behemoth is actually rowing in the same direction is, is exactly what I do at NBC Universal. So the training I had from the White House actually, again, came in really handy when I made the switch. So you mentioned high profile and high stakes. Today happens to be Friday, November 6th. Uh, votes are still being counted in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, at least as of you know a few minutes ago when we started talking. Uh, the, the news media, obviously this was a big week for them too, um, where they had to pay close attention um, to what might they do on election night and thereafter, and what could potentially happen in the aftermath. We're watching President Trump do, you know, unfortunately fulfill some of the worst predictions of how he might uh, respond. I'm just curious, did you have um, uh, any role or any, can you share any uh, insight on how the news division of NBC prepared uh, for election week? Well, they um, it's a fabulous team of people. I mean, if you've been watching our coverage, I think it's uh, been absolutely outstanding. The, the range of people we have on the ground in the field, the people that we've had on the desk, Steve Kornacki, who I don't think has slept since <laughs> since Tuesday, no. okay, well, nor what does do you he appear him? to have changed his clothes. That's right. 
whatever he's on, let us know, please, because that's yeah. a valuable substance. But, um, you know, they have been preparing for months for this. They, they, I think everybody knew that this was going to be a complex election, um, that there could be a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, it, it has all been editorial judgments, though. There actually haven't been many legal issues at all. We have a fantastic team that, you know, is embedded with the news division and does provide them legal advice on a regular basis and is available to them 24 hours a day. But all of the preparation that went into election day and the incredible work that they have done was the result of just good journalistic preparation for the day. The decision desk, which focuses on you know when to make the calls about a particular state, they have worked very hard. They actually work separately from the journalists that you see on TV. They make the calls. They're not impacted when making those calls by what's actually being reported by the correspondents or by the anchors. Um, and that's designed to make sure that those decisions are very carefully thought out and very cautious before they make calls. And I think that was the thing that was in their head more than anything else about preparing for this particular election day was making sure that they were accurate, that accuracy was better than speed. They were not going to worry at all about any competitive impulses to try to be first because it was far more important that it was accurate. And they did send some time trying to make sure they understood the various state laws and rules regarding ballots and deadlines so that they weren't approaching it by just the same day vote, but really taking into consideration the extraordinary circumstances that led to a huge portion of the vote being a mail-in vote so that they weren't you know, using the right language on a regular basis to describe the status of the vote so it wasn't creating any misleading impression for viewers. But that was all journalistic. It was all editorial. It was, it's just a fantastic team. And I think they've done a terrific job. Yeah. Um, having su succeeded and been in, in really um, rarefied air in both the government service and also private sector, what are some misunderstandings that you think, you know, both sides may have of the other? That is, how do you help translate uh, between those two sides? You know, I think the biggest thing I always find is that for the most part, both sides are acting with good intentions. I think that... Um, you know, sometimes in government, people look at corporations and they see them as evil corporations that are focused on profit to the exclusion of all else. And that's just not the case. You know, corporations are filled with lots of people who have good intentions and are trying to do their jobs and are trying to do the right thing. And so I think giving corporations a little bit more the benefit of the doubt is uh, not such a bad thing when you're in government. And by the way, there's lots of opportunities for partnership because private sector has a lot of expertise in a lot of areas where government staffers are going to be developing policy. We always try to help the relevant committees understand the entertainment business and some of the challenges we have. And we always offer to go teach them what it's like to put together a film. And you know, that for us, for example, the implications of piracy on our business, on the jobs that we provide. But we, there, there's a lot of room for partnership there. And so I think giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And I think that works in reverse as well. I think that sometimes corporations can look at staffers like they're political hacks, but but the same thing goes. They are people who are trying to do the right thing, who believe in making policy changes that hopefully make things better for the American people. And I think giving them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, and again, trying to find the areas of partnership would be the much better way to go. 
for people who are working in government today or, or aspire to be a staffer, what in your mind makes a really good staffer and what advice do you give people? You know, I, I think what makes a really good staffer is knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and being willing to go out and learn the stuff that you don't know so that you can make give the best possible advice to your principal or um, do the best job you can in developing policy. Because people, I think, who don't do a good job are the ones who think they already know everything. Um, and it's just, there's, there's just too much to know on any individual topic for anybody to know everything. And so being willing to reach out to others, to find the experts, to get the advice, to get the experience, I think is really important in being a good staffer. Did you have a mentor, uh, coming up, especially on the, uh, on the government side? Well, you know, all of the people that I worked for, Lanny Brewer was great. He was my first boss, um, my first time in government and uh, was just fantastic in helping me navigate the, the the complexities of the Justice Department, but overall just being part, being a political appointee in the administration. And um, I absolutely adore both Bob Bauer and Kathy Rumler, who are the two White House counsels that I worked for. They are both incredible lawyers, smarter than me, smarter than most people. Um, and they were just also great mentors. I mean, Kathy and I are actually the same age, but I often refer to her as a mentor anyway, not only because she gave me the opportunity to be the principal deputy, but I thought we were a perfect complement to each other. You know, my job on a day-to-day -day basis was just run the legal function. Kathy's was to help the president make some big and difficult decisions. But she, as you know, Kathy um, never shrunk away from giving the hard advice. Um, she always spoke her mind. Um, and I thought it was an incredible skill that she had. And I think the president really respected her for that, that she was a person who would say no to him, who would tell him the truth, even when it was something he may not wanted to hear. And I always just thought that's what made her a fantastic staffer because she, she gave the hard truths in addition to giving the rest of the advice. So I have this fantasy that one day I would build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall. Uh, would Kathy and Bob be nominees? Absolutely. No question right. in my mind. We will begin commissioning the bronze busts of them. <laughs> um, so one question I like to ask folks is about a time that they screwed up and what they learned from it. Um, can you tell us about a time like that? You know, it's so funny. I I was racking my brain and I, 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 and it sounds completely arrogant for me to say that because I'm not perfect by any means, but I could not think of an example of, of, <laughs> of when I had screwed up. I don't know. You tell me, Jim, do you remember a time oh. I screwed up when I was in the White House? No, but uh, no, I don't at all. You were incredible. Um, I do remember one time, this is not a screw up story, but I remember um, w during one of the investigations, you and Kathy and I went up to the Hill for a meeting um, with the House Energy and Commerce Committee when they were considering issuing a subpoena. And this is the one that was ultimately issued. And at the time, um, you know, the Democrats were not fully convinced that the White House had provided all the information that the committee was owed. So that that was the, the purpose of the meeting was to go up and show what we had done. And you and Kathy engaged with the chairman and ranking member of the full committee and the chairman and ranking member of the subcommittee. And we laid out for them everything that they'd asked for and how, you know, time and again, we had provided the documents that were responsive to 
their legitimate inquiry. And when we got done with our presentation, which again, as I as I mentioned at the beginning, it was not it was this was not like a D versus R thing. This was Congress looking at the executive branch, wondering. Um, the, the Democrats said, you know what, this sounds reasonable. Um, it sounds to us like they have complied with our legitimate interest. Are you guys satisfied? The chairman started, you know, to indicate that he was going to be satisfied, and the subcommittee chairman. <laughs> was furious and they started bickering in front of us. Yes. And the subcommittee chairman, you know, after being at, you know, after the chairman was like, well, it's not about the subpoena. And the subcommittee chairman blurted out, it is about the subpoena. And it, <laughs> at that moment, we were like, okay, well, that's all, that's all that needs to be said. Like, yeah. this was just about, you know, firing the bullet, whether or not, you know, the, the circumstances uh, warranted it. Yeah, I, I you know, it's funny. I remember that meeting vividly because I don't know if you remember, but when the subcommittee chairman started to speak, he kept referring to Kathy um, sort of in the third person as if she wasn't even sitting there and wasn't giving, do you remember that? Yes. And I remember being outraged at sort of the disrespect that the White House counsel was sitting in front of them and they weren't giving her the respect that she um, clearly deserved. Um, I, I, I remember that vividly. And I've always wondered whether if the White House counsel had been a man, whether they would have treated uh, the White House counsel in the same way, because I just thought the behavior was absolutely unacceptable. And that, you know, it's funny because I, I, I remember I was getting very angry and enraged and I wanted to open my mouth and Kathy just put her hand on me to, to remind me it wasn't worth it, which she was right. It wasn't worth it at the time, but it did still feel uh, outrageous. It was outrageous. It, that was actually a turning point. So subsequently, the, the committee met. Uh, the committee voted to issue the subpoena, but it was a partisan vote. The Democrats voted not to issue the subpoena. But because they were in the minority, they lost. I come back to the White House and people were congratulating me on a job well done because my job was to manage that committee and um, it had been a partisan vote. And I remember being so depressed because I thought, oh, now that's that's a that's a mark of, of accomplishment now. We had spent the first two years yeah. with a majority in Congress passing meaningful legislation, being as ambitious as we could, really trying to impact people's lives. And we weren't perfect, but we got a lot done. And then after we lost the majority, it was more along this, you know, and yep. I thought. Hmm. That's, a, that's exactly what happened. For two years, we had to deal with situations like that. I have another nominee for the Stafford Hall of Fame. Tell me. Um, it just, your story reminded me of it. Dave Rapallo, who was, yes. was, isn't he fantastic? I forget what his exact role was. I think he was um, chief counsel to Elijah Cummings in his role as chair of the, or I guess he was ranking member of House um, Oversight and Government Reform. Yep. He was phenomenal, smart, understood the issues, often outflanked and um, you know, outdid the Republicans on the committee um, and, and at the same time focused on what were the real issues, what was the, the appropriate exercise of the oversight responsibilities of Congress. But I just thought he was fantastic. Great partner Ab for us. Absolutely right. Um, I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, a question I'd like to ask is, is there someone from across the aisle who you got to work with that you admire? 
So I didn't have the best experiences with the folks on the other side when we were dealing with the House on investigations. But to my earlier comment about the Bush administration, I actually did a fair amount of outreach to the lawyers who worked in my position in the Bush administration, and they were terrific. Um, Bill Burke, for example, who had my job in the Bush administration directly before, um, Raul Yanis, who was staff secretary to President Bush, uh, they were both, again, great lawyers, intelligent, had great integrity, and um, we saw the commonality in what we were doing and could have really rational discussions about executive privilege and um, executive branch authority and the authority of the office of the president. And uh, they were sort of partners in the same endeavor of protecting the office of the presidency. And I thought they were both terrific. And last question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? So, you know, the best advice I was ever given was by um, one of the first women who was a partner at Davis Polk way back when. And her advice was when I was sort of all concerned about my career and whether I was hitting the right milestones and the right time. And she basically said to me, what's your rush? And she said, you know, a career is long and you have lots of opportunities to take right turns and take left turns and just take your time. Don't operate on somebody else's timetable. And it was the best advice I had ever gotten, not only because at the time it gave me the confidence to have three kids and three maternity leaves while I was a young lawyer, but it always stuck in my mind even later on when I left the partnership to go work in government it was in some ways a detour in my career. I was actually in a relatively junior role in the Justice Department. I ultimately had a very senior role in the White House. But if I hadn't sort of slowed down to take the time to actually fulfill the dream of mine of, of having the ability to do some public service and to work in government, I never would have had those opportunities. And in turn, I probably never would have had the opportunity to be the general counsel of NBC Universal. And so I've always thought that was the best advice I'd ever gotten to just slow down, take your time, make sure you don't miss those opportunities you might not be expecting, but can really change your life. That is brilliant. I've never heard that piece of advice and that is so good. So thank you. <laughs> and Kim, thank you for the time you've given us today. Um, it's been so good to catch up with you and I, I can't really express my appreciation to you enough. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. It was great to see you. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.